Okay, so welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan. Uh, with us today is a uh, special guest, Cynthia Andrews, who is a veteran of the NYC Poetry Circuit and has had readings in such venues as the Knitting Factory, Cornelia Street Cafe, St. Mark's Church, a New York um, Poets Cafe, where her performances were um, one of the first to be archived at Poets House. Uh, she has also been widely published in various literary journals and anthologies. Um, then uh, she has the author of two chapbooks, Saving Summer and Homeless, the New York uh, Press, and one poetry collection a little before 12 by Poets of Queens. Um, she has been a favorite guest on uh, favorite guest poet on cable TV and radio, including Teachers and Writings in the Morning and WBIA. Nominated for Pushcart Prize twice and finalist for the Downtown Year um, of the Poet Award. She an MFA in Creative Writing and resides in Queens, New York. Welcome, Cindy. Oh, thank you so much, VJ. Thank you, thank you. So pl- such a pleasure to have you here. Um, why don't we start the conversation off a little bit about uh, a little before twelve? Uh, tell us a little bit about that collection and uh, and your poetry in general. How what themes you're interested in, or what things constantly come up for you as a, as a writer. Oh, well, this is a compilation of more than 10 years of work, and uh, half of the book is uh, contemporary as well. Uh, fresh poems that were written uh, within a year or so in the past year, uh, reflecting the pandemic and uh, so forth. Um, and it's uh, it's been interesting pulling it all together. Yeah, Um now, yeah, okay, good, good. So we'll listen to a few poems from uh, a little over 12 in a few minutes. But uh, so you're returning again to like um, the themes and such. What, what kind of ideas do you have? I know you kind um, of, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I'm a native New Yorker, and uh, this is September. We just passed the 20th anniversary, and that, that hit me really hard because I used to work uh, down um, Wall Street for a very long time. So mm. a lot of the poems... Uh, are reflective of that and um, my angst about our attack uh, yeah. on my city. And um, it's also uh, a little before 12 is um, is really um, a love poem. And mm. um, some of these poems are love poems. Um, and um, I also have quite a few about um, the pandemic and being stuck uh, just a few miles from where it all began, <laughs> in Queens. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so now you uh, also, have, yeah, obviously the poetry collection, a little before twelve, has a lot of deep connection with history, as you're saying, like the twenty years ago, the nine eleven, as well as uh, you, you dedicate the um, collection to your teacher, Allen Ginsberg. Tell us a bit about your connection to uh, the Beatnik movement and and how that inspires you. Uh, well. Allen Ginsberg was, and the Beats themselves, were innovators, just like Whitman, and uh, they changed expression in America and in the world uh, for literature uh, because, you know, Hal was uh, taken to court, Allen was taken to court, and uh, Hal was uh, proved to be literature and not uh, uh, just something he wrote off the cuff as obscene. <laughs> so... Um, I did want to mention that the book also contains um, quite a few poems about my parents, my father and my mother, my father who was uh, a war hero, and my mother uh, who recently died, well, in 2012. 
So I I do have quite a few poems about both of both of them as well. But yes, um, getting back to the beat poets, um, uh, they they simply changed the world with. Um, and now we're up to the point of of uh, spoken word also being accepted, and uh, that's due to the beat movement as well. Yeah, yeah. So it's really great, and it's really great. You have uh, maybe we'll listen to some of the poems regarding uh, some of those themes. Um, so now, uh, you know, talking about, um, you know, when we talk about the beatniks, we talk about truths, you know, some of the themes of the show have to do with finding or discovering a, an elemental truth, you know, something that's true for you, something that's true for the communities that you, um, reside in and that you inhabit the space you inhabit. So what is something that's true that you, um, have discovered that helps, helps you feel empowered or helps you feel, um, you know, uh, feel, feel feel like you're you have some, yeah. Well, poetry is all all about truth. Yeah, it's all about uh, seeing the truth when other people can't seem to, and uh, or at least not immediately. And so um, that's what every um, poem is about. Really, it's it's an interpretation of of a certain truth, a specific truth that the poet sees that other people can't. Um, so. I mean, even a love poem is is that way, um, and it's um, it can be inspiring as well. Yeah. So you're saying uh, basically, um, yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting how even love poems can have I mean, reveal something like an essential truth. Yes. That, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The essential truth that that helps you understand the nature of your feelings, the nature of the the feelings that flow through you, and all this kind of thing, and. Um, yeah, yeah. So what do you think is something that's undervalued in society? What truth do you think is undervalued in society? Like that we, we generally don't acknowledge as being true, but you feel you feel powerfully is, is true. Anybody's feelings um, and, and opinions. Uh, today, um, it's all about PC, and, and that can be a good thing, but if it's taken too far, um, I, I don't believe it can. It's stifling. Yeah, yeah. Tell us a little bit more about that and how, how that maybe weaves into your collection, how you're able to uh, weave like kind of uh, the harsh truths into your collection. Uh, well, um, um, it's about the way I see myself as well and, and yeah. the world. Um, yeah. And um, a lot of them are, um, I have a poem, um, how... Uh, while working on Wall Street, I have a poem that reflects uh, the fear that I felt and everybody else um, there and um, our feelings toward Osama bin Laden at the time, which was uh, a little bit on the funny side, but but serious as well. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. It's like, um, uh, yeah, yeah, continue. Please continue on with that. And, and, and maybe we could read a poem. Maybe we can read a poem that has to do with this kind of theme. Well, I was going to start with the title poem. Yeah. Uh, if that's okay. That's great, yeah. Let's see. Um, um, okay. A little before 12. I saw you again in my mind, and we made love. You touched my hand and held it for a very long time just as you have always done. I kissed your neck and the bristle of your cheek, and you pulled me toward you. I got out of the subway a little before noon, 
still thinking of you after the long train ride and surrounded by the smell of roses. I was your muse, conjured up by your own mind as a dream filters through a poem like a goddess of light in a black gauze dress. You stroke my hair slowly and softly and make me giggle and talk poetry long into the morning hours. You touch my hand and hold it for a long time. I kiss your neck and the bristle of your cheek. Your hand suddenly dips into my blouse and I slap it hard, but you make me laugh so much that it really doesn't matter. One of my buttons drops to the floor and I hear it click, but I really don't care what's happening around me except for how good your skin feels on me. I feel your wet lips on mine and can taste the beer you had a moment ago. I saw you again today in my mind, and we made love again. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you, thank you. Um, so, yeah, yeah, so thinking about experiences that were like watershed moments or threshold moments in your life, like how relationships can be kind of breaking breaking through thresholds or breaking through, um, you know, kind of showing you things and uh, talking a little bit about that and how any significant relationships you'd like to talk about that perhaps uh, were very uh, instrumental in your growth? Um, well, my relationship with my teachers and the MFA. Yeah. I've got the MFA from Brooklyn College, and uh, I've experienced uh, Allen Ginsberg, uh, Louis Asikoff, and Susan Fromberg Schaefer, who were all very, very different in their approach, and uh, it was very rewarding. It, it was... Um, a really takedown on everybody's ego going through that uh, program, but it was worth it. Yeah, yeah. So basically, you're saying is that the relationships you had with your teachers was uh, was very instrumental in your in your growth. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Can you expand on that a little bit more? Um. Well, before I started the MFA, I I knew that I liked a poem or didn't like a poem, mm. but you are pushed to identify exactly why. And in writing my own stuff, I, I know when something is good, and I know when I have to revise it. So um, there's a certain maturity that occurs after two years of, the, of an MFA program that you wouldn't have had had you not gone through it, I think. <laughs> yeah, tell us a little bit about some of the poems that perhaps you changed your view on. Is it can anything come to mind that a poem that you'd read previously that when going through your any uh poems that come you read previously or some of the uh, ideas that you read previously that changed your view as you went through the MFA program? Um No. Uh there isn't. <laughs> yeah, uh, because uh, I I did write uh, a couple of poems in uh very deep rhyme, and Allen Ginsberg would say, uh, "How do you do this? You know, it's uh, are you putting this on? Are you uh, uh, pre-calculating uh, the mm. rhyme?" And I would say, "No, it's it just comes, and and uh, it's sort of like the way I I want to to express this uh, particular thought." Mm. So, um, yeah. So. I, I did come up with uh, a performance poem that's a short performance poem that uh, that has to do with kind of like PC, what we were talking about, uh, mm. the power of truth, if I could read that. Yeah, sure, sure. Okay, it's called We Made You. We made you, we gave you, we took from you, 
We stole from you. We left you. We lied to you. We got you where we want you. We made you. We love you. We hate you. We are with you. We are without you. We are against you. We are for you. We starve you. We pay you. We hire you. We feed you. We deprive you. We kiss you. We hurt you. We venerate you. We denigrate and demean you. We loathe you. We adore you. We sing your praises. We list your vices like anxious vultures. We run for cover. We are out in the open. We are out of the closet. We are right behind you. We have you now. We lost you forever. We bring you up. We bring you down. We find you. We lose you. We keep you as we want you. We made you. We are not God, but who asked you? Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So commenting on that, like, um, wh- who do you see the we as being? Like, who is the, uh, who's the we there? How, how, do, you, uh, how do you identify um, the we? The man. You know, the man, <laughs> what yeah. we used to say in the 60s and 70s, uh, the, the people that control things out there. Yeah. Um, and uh, sometimes it's difficult going uh, uh, through life if you feel that, um, you know, you have to detour a lot of um, opinions and, and people and PC stuff, as I said before. Yeah. And uh, it, uh, what is conventional is not always uh, acceptable to to an artist, um, or I hope not to offend anyone or exaggerate on that point, but um, yeah, yeah, people um, go through life at a certain point, and they can feel very alienated as well. Yeah, yeah, this is interesting. Um, yeah, so then speaking about um, the philosophies and, and such, continue to, to probe a little deeper into the philosophies and and perspectives that really change your viewpoint. Tell us a bit about growing up and how, you know, how, like, what, what kind of philosophical systems did you, um, were you exposed to, and how did that change as you grew older? I grew up with a church on every single corner. <laughs> yeah. And um, a community that was extremely close-knit. Everybody knew each other. Nobody locked their doors. And this was, um, I'm, I'm kind of old. This was like the 60s and 70s. And... Um, pre-gentrification, uh, Greenpoint, Brooklyn. So you could just imagine. Um, we, we lived across from the park, McCarran Park. It was like the safest neighborhood in New York and probably one of the safest in the world. Uh, it was 15 minutes to Manhattan and a block to the subway. So um, I would, um, as a teenager, I would... Um, play tennis in the park, and then uh, run off on Saturdays to uh, an artsy film at the Paris Theater. You know, uh, it was that easy to, to enrich my, uh, myself as a person, as a woman. And um, it was really wonderful growing up there. Uh, basic values, and, uh, and nobody stopped you from, uh, from, you could stay in one place or you can grow. And that was the great part of it. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Um, so now, like, when you uh, when you share your poetry, like, when you write, when you're writing, tell us a bit of your creative process in in writing the poems, and and what you hope your reader will get from your poetry, or what you hope to gift the reader um, from writing the poems. Do you keep in mind a, an ideal reader, or do you, do you have a vision of your mind, like who the typical reader or the type of reader that you think would benefit from, or do you have like a general reader, or 
or yourself yeah. as the reader? How's your how's your process work? Uh, no, um, I hope everybody would uh, benefit from it, um, even though it's a woman that's writing it. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I I would think uh, even the performance poems can work on the page, and um, I'm rather proud of the book. It took uh, a while uh, to compile, and um, it's a small little book. Um, somebody once told me that um, that my poems uh, hit an epiphany, so I hope everybody can can get that sense. Yeah. I hope anyway. And and the process I have, um, if I have an idea, and I know that it's um, uh, ruminating inside my head, I let it ruminate until I have it almost perfect. Then I put it down on paper, and uh, very little editing. Uh, and then I come back to it maybe a few months later. To revise the whole thing, or or not to, uh, not to edit at all. So um, that's the way it goes for me. But it varies with every writer, every poet. Yeah, thank you, thank you. So, um, yeah. So in regards to what you hope the the listener would get, basically you're saying like uh, they they get like a little epiphany for themselves, a little uh, insight, a little into the into the topic at hand, topic covered, and get, be able to kind of investigate their own perspectives would you say of that of that event yes exactly yeah yeah hopefully that's what every poet uh wants to accomplish mm. um there's there's always an epiphany in uh in poetry and you were talking about the truth so yeah. that that's where that comes in for sure uh, because uh if you gain an epiphany when you read something or or see something some piece of art it's like wow i now i get it Oh, you know, and it's uh it's a really uh, gratifying experience, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. So um yeah, talking about one of the questions I have um in the in the uh general question I ask everyone has to do with uh, and you kind of started to begin to answer this question, but it was like what is a belief or practice that you have that's stranger and popular within your industry? So what is something you think that uh you believe or something you think is true? that is like not generally, that, that may be considered strange or unpopular, uh, an unpopular opinion. You started talking a little bit about some of these uh, ideas, but if you can continue on with that, yeah. Uh, you, uh, I'm sorry, uh, can you repeat the question? Sure, sure. So what is a belief or practice that you engage in that or believe that is strange or unpopular within uh, poetry world or within the industries that you inhabit? Well, I mean, I, I have um, a very specific poem about um, my Catholic religion, which uh, is uh, I grew up in a, in a, in a Polish-oriented church and a Catholic um, um, school uh, for 12 years. And I have, uh, in fact, I have a poem uh, called Consolation that was recently published. So that's not too uh, popular, although um, it was published um, uh, in a couple of places. Yeah. So yeah, why don't you read one of the poems about uh, dealing with the uh, the religious upbringing and how you and how you process that, and then we can talk a little bit about that. Uh, okay. Uh, 
Uh, it's called um, Consolation. The church is dark and quiet, except for a woman who looks to be about 90 years old, kneeling and sobbing and whispering prayers to the icon of the Madonna, though it's only a copy of the original back in Poland. What does it matter anyway? It's only a month after the attack, and all I can remember is what a damnable long way it was to walk from the subway to the towers, and I was always late. It is a church where my mother first taught me to pray. It is where I received First Communion, got married in a solemn ceremony, and cried with all of my classmates after we had long graduated from the school, when our Monsignor suddenly died at 83. I am back today for just a minute or two. I bury my face in my hands and join in the cries and sobs to the Madonna. When I decide to leave, the sudden harsh light of the outside world attacks my eyes as I open the door. So I stay a little longer in the front chapel where the angel statues offer solace for tired travelers. Thank you, thank you. So beautiful. I think it's interesting when you think about um, how these iconography and, and, and the effect it has on all of us, you know, kind of the power of the iconography. Yeah, tell us a little more about kind of how you're processing and, and where, where you stand now in regards to in relationship to your, to your faith. Well, my faith is okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the Catholic Church that, uh, that uh, I'm, I'm uh, widening my stance to, mm. so to speak. Um, I, I don't know, like, like what's going on there. And anyway, with the pandemic, I, I haven't been to Mass, and, and I'd like to, but uh, um, it's, uh, I don't like being a cafeteria Catholic, you know, which means uh, just uh, accepting what I want to accept and and not accepting what I don't want to accept, but mm-hmm. um, uh, it, it's really discouraging what's what's going on in, in the church today. Yeah. Can you be more specific, or can you tell us a little bit more about Well, with the priests. Yeah. And, and uh, attacking innocent kids and so forth. Yeah, the cover-ups in regards to that, yeah. And that too, yeah. Yeah, interesting, interesting, yeah. It's so, it's so amazing how... You know, we, we find out about these things, but then the church doesn't want to acknowledge or, or kind of condemn. They just kind of brushing under the brushing under the under the carpet, as it were. Well, what I like about a lot of my friends have changed from Catholicism to other religions, but mm. what I like about it is that somebody once said to me, uh, you know, with Catholicism there are so many different ways um, to pray. So you don't, you don't have to pray just one way if you don't feel like it. You, you, if you feel like doing it a different way, you can, you know, pick up the rosary for almost an hour, or you can, uh, uh, you, you can go to the internet and pray with somebody there. I mean, there's a whole lot of different ways um, to do it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you. Um, so now we talked a little bit about um, how some of the uh, some of the works that influenced you. Uh, but if you continue to expand on how, like, how you get inspiration from different uh, different perspectives, things you've read, or and how they've influenced your spooky your writing. Well, um, yeah. yes. Uh, when I was younger, I read a lot of Robert Frost and Yeats mm. and Dickinson, and of course Walt Whitman, being mm. uh, from uh, Brooklyn, and a couple of blocks from where he, uh, not a couple of blocks, but not too far. 
And uh, but then when I matured, I mean, getting to the New Yorican, it just opened up so much, um, not just because of the performance aspect, but it was also um, a, a freedom of expression, even on the page, and a freedom uh, to express uh, what was uh, taboo before. And I really appreciated that. Yeah, that's an interesting to, uh, vein to go down, is your performance uh, performance. Uh, history and how that and how that kind of feeds into the like performance and then you have the page and how the two are in dialogue with each other tell us a little bit more about that yeah well that takes um, a maturity of of an artist and and that's really all that is i think mm. um it it doesn't um you just have to work at it you have to have the talent to begin with and work at it um if it doesn't work on the page then, uh, then you're. The, if you wanted to work on the page, then you'd better work at it, yeah. uh, so that it works at both uh, the performance end and and uh, on the page as well. That that's the way I feel. Yeah. So, uh, what was it? What was your experience? Tell us a little more the evolution of your performance history and and how that how you're able to gain uh, more perhaps more insights into the page as you're saying. Um, well, so when did you start? When did you start? What age did you start like performing poetry? Oh, in my thirties. Your thirties. Uh, okay. Well, so, a little bit earlier. Yeah. Uh, but um, uh, mainly uh, at the New Yorican, and uh, I was so shy to get on. I had to wait until three o'clock in the morning at the New Yorican. However, everywhere else, um, I began reading like crazy everywhere else, and every time I'd have a new poem. I'd want to get it out there, and um, it was uh, a wonderful experience. Yeah, yeah, that's great, that's great. So returning to the collection as it stands right now, a little before 12, uh, so that kind of reminds me a little bit of the Doomsday Clock, right? Was that your intention, or uh, was that your intention to say, like, you know, they have the 3 minutes to 12, 2 minutes to 12, or 5 minutes to 12, they have the varying varying degrees. Uh, I don't know if that was your <laughs> no, but question. I like that. Yeah. Um, no, I was um, um, my um, the love that I that I had uh, we shared. It was a yeah. little bit before twelve, and yeah. uh, getting out of the subway was a little before twelve, okay. as I mentioned in the poem. So uh, that that's where that's at. Oh, okay. Yeah. But that's so, interesting. I like that. Yeah, because it's like Doomsday Clock. They always say like four minutes to twelve. <laughs> you know, so I, I thought that was the, what it was coming from. Yeah, it adds a bit of mystery it adds to a bit, it. Yeah, it adds a little something to it, right? Right. Because people generally are familiar with the doomsday mm-hmm. clocks. They may think, they may kind of impute that on Right, there. that's good. That's Pretty interesting. Good. Yeah. So this, this is the Truth to Power Show on Radio for Brooklyn. You're here with Cynthia Andrews of, uh, you know, her poetry collection, uh, A Little Before 12, was published by Poets of Queens. She also has a two chapbooks out, Same Summer and Homeless by the new uh, press. So tell us a little bit about those chapbooks and how perhaps those chapbooks um, were, yeah, earlier in your, earlier in your, um, yeah, well, very early in my career. Yeah, in career yeah. um, it, it was um, a lot of fun uh, to, uh, to read and to sell. And um, it's, it's like, you know, what Whitman do is, uh, had done selling leaves of grass on the corner, you know, mm. it was, um, nothing has really changed for, um, a New York poet, uh, or any poet, really. Yeah, you, so... You, you start that way. You learn the ropes that way. 
And um, I even hosted uh, a reading at Barnes & Noble, uh, one of the Barnes & Nobles. I forget mm. which one. Yeah. So you also, it says in your bio, it talks about being a guest poet on cable TV and radio. Uh-huh. Tell us about those experiences and, uh, and how being on, on, on uh, cable TV and uh, WPIA. Uh-huh. Well, that was WPIA. exciting. That was wonderful. I, I mean, yeah. I, I was so grateful for the opportunity and to read my, uh, my poetry on. Uh, it's, it's really um, uh, a great opportunity to access uh, an audience that I wouldn't ordinarily have. Mm-hmm. Um, it reaches out to, to a lot more people. Yeah. So also, regards to your uh, poetry practice, uh, do you do you like to write? Um, you write freehand, or do you use computer? How do you? How do you? What is your methodology for writing? I, you know, I've changed. Uh, now I use the computer word processing. Yeah. Uh, because I have to get it down uh, quickly. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I I write it down. It it depends on my mood, and it depends on the poem, also. But most of the time, it's it's on the computer. When, when do you feel most inspired? What time of day? Uh, it doesn't work that way. It, uh, huh, you just get inspired. And for me, I, I might have the entire poem in my head, in which case I want to write it down immediately. Or I, as I said, I let it ruminate. And, um, and then when I, I have the finished poem in my head already, I just have to... Um, uh, put it down on paper, and mm. that's usually what I do on the computer, and then I refine it, of course. Yeah, good, good. Um, why don't we listen to another one of your poems? You can select, uh, and we can talk a little bit about the, the themes that come up um, from that. Oh, okay. Like we're about halfway through, so. Um, well, I have a poem about my family when my uncle died mm-hmm. and my uh, my paternal uncle and my paternal uh, aunts at the funeral uh, it's called A Soldier's Daughter Never Cries um, is it okay to read that one? Yeah sure sure thank you Okay. It feels exactly like the crowded kitchen in Queens New York when Queens New York was still like country in the big three family Victorian when my father's only brother was put in his grave Ten years after my father, and we all gathered in the big kitchen around the big table with my father's five sisters surrounding me. It feels like that now, grieving for you and yearning for you, a relationship of ten years, and my oldest cousin asked if I was okay standing at the grave because I looked so pale. I really should have married you. How stupid was I? I sat at the table waiting for all of them, one dark, one fair, another older than the rest, until all five were there around me. I waited until the coffee was served to say how much I missed him and how I wished I could die at 17. And the oldest looked at the ceiling, and the darkest looked away, and the fairest got up to get more coffee. I thought at least one of them would lend me a tear, but they are all children of a war hero, as my father had been. And so I felt the fool with my face wet, sitting at that table until one of their husbands began imitating an altar boy in church earlier who was conspicuously picking his nose during the service, which of course made everyone laugh 
and forget that the worst had just happened, and then the oldest finally stopped looking at the ceiling, and I got up to get myself another cup of coffee. Mm. Thank you. Interesting how you have like the miniature life, miniatures of life, and you're able to access these deeper emotions, the deeper currents that go underneath it, yeah. Right. Well, I was experiencing the same things as my aunts were, um, my paternal grandfather was uh, a uh, officer of the Polish cavalry, and my father was uh, an American war hero of World War II. So um, the title of the poem is A Soldier's Daughter Never Cries. And when I sat down to cry for my uncle, my aunts turned away. and They were in the habit of not showing their emotion as, uh, mm. as I had, had, been, uh, had grown to to become, yeah. <laughs> except for my poetry, I guess. Yeah. In fact, Allen Ginsberg used to say, uh, you know, you can criticize Cindy as, a lot, but she'll never cry. <laughs> <laughs> She's a tough cookie. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I think that uh, poetry definitely puts us in touch with our feelings, puts us in touch with our emotional process. You know, it's definitely part of the processing. You know, it may not be an outward sign, but we have the, the ability to process our emotional lives through writing yes. would you say yes yeah absolutely definitely definitely um yeah so uh talking a little bit about how like you know we talk about healing modalities as well it kind of brings to mind some of the shows have been about you know understanding um how we under how like kind of contextualizing the healing modality and how you know we have these wounds or these uh, primal areas of like um you know, you know, according to according to certain traditions or Catholic tradition, they believe in like original sin, where there's an original wound that is prior, like perhaps beyond our control, and then uh, or indigenous transgression, and some people may think of it as original wounding. Um, but then, in your own life, how we're able to process that and come to a place of healing? Yeah, that's you know, a good yeah. question. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, so it's an area to explore. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. What do you think about all that? All those discourses about that? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it's a, it's a little bit different from uh, the um, Baptists. Who, mm. uh, I was already baptized. And um, the thing is, is that um, we have Lent every year, and it's, it's a time of renewal. And um, so it's also a time to think over what you've done. And uh, you mentioned sin, quote-unquote. Yeah, and you don't have to refer to what um, uh, what you've done, uh, what you've done wrong, or um, what you uh, wanted to do uh, better <laughs> as sin. But you you um, you can try to make it better, uh, or make yourself better by um, by thinking it over during that time of Lent. And um, thinking, well, how how might I have done it better? And so um, by Easter, um, you should come up with with something that um, might uh, push you in in a better direction. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that we have the the year to kind of process and and space those out, so that by the time you know we kind of um, yeah, and, and the markers of the year. So, uh, yeah, and then uh, speaking of, like, time passing and kind of, like, uh, how we're able to process uh, 
possibly traumatic events. You know, we mentioned nine mm-hmm. eleven and and right. and and the coronavirus, the COVID nineteen uh, pandemic. Um, you know, kind of the language around, even around, like I think one of the poems had to do with the language around um, how we refer to COVID nineteen as the coronavirus or COVID nineteen. Mm-hmm. You're kind of dealing and dealing with some of the kind of yeah, maybe that might be a good poem to explore. Um, you know, kind of how, how you process, or just generally how you processed COVID-19, uh, as a, as a, uh, as a, um, event in your life. Uh, well, it's alienating. Uh, as I said, I was, uh, just a couple of, um, couple of miles from where it all began. Yeah. And, um. Well, the, the intensity of the, the, the height of the pandemic was in. Uh, uh, Elmhurst. Yeah, in Elmhurst, yeah. <laughs> well, I have something called Notes from Armageddon. Yeah. <laughs> they say Florida will be washed up in just a few years, and the entire southeast coastline will disappear. It's April 2020, and I am sitting in the middle of the epicenter of the coronavirus in New York City. And my boyfriend just passed away on Valentine's Day, and I know I should have married him. I am in my studio apartment day after day, cleaning the floors, washing the dishes, and reading my mysteries. I hear my mother, my father, and my teacher, Allen Ginsberg, talking to me between disinfecting kitchen counters and Roseanne repeats. Don't eat too many sweets. Do some exercise. Write me a haiku every single day for the next three weeks. Yes, I should have married him. I've got enough food for a month, but what happens in May? Maybe I'll have a chocolate donut now that the floors are dry. Thank God I can say how much I still hate the smell of bleach. It's springtime in New York City, but I still wish I could leave these four-letter walls for Disneyland. Beautiful, beautiful. Kind of a funny yeah. take on it. <laughs> yeah, interesting, interesting. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah, so what else coming up for you as far as, like, uh, you're like writing where, where you're going from here, where you hope to, to bring yourself in the future and uh-huh. where, where thematically, what is, what is catching your interest as far as, uh, well, um, uh, now that the pandemic is slowly, uh, dissipating, I hope, um, I'd like to do more readings, um, out there mm. and uh, for my book and I'm, I'm putting together another book, uh, slowly but surely. And, um, uh, hopefully I'll, I'll be teaching soon as well. So, um, I, I had been teaching at, uh, uh various schools as, as an adjunct and I hope to get back into it. Very good. So when you teach, tell us a little bit about teaching and how, and what kind of, what kind of things do you, what kind of classes do you teach? Well, I just teach, um, English composition to freshman, uh, college students. Okay. And, um, it's, um, to me, it's, it's a great privilege and um, I was a legal assistant for many, many years, and uh, it's just a great experience. And uh, you can make the course your own with some innovative ideas, or you could just uh, lecture conventionally. So it's really up to the professor to handle it the way they want, and uh, it's been great. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what are some of the things that you comes up for you as far as, like, beginning writers and what advice do you have for like, what is the word? Like, you know, budding writers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, um, yeah. I, I like, uh, I like them to, um, 
to write down their personal histories as in first person and also in third person, which gives them uh, a great perspective. Mm. And I also encourage them to read, um, I bring in excerpts usually, of um, people who have written memoirs in a way, but um, uh, documented uh, a certain time uh, in our society. And um, uh, so it's, uh, it's not exactly fiction, and it's not exactly um, autobiography. People like uh, Peggy Noonan, who has written um, What I Saw at the Revolution, uh, Norman Mailer's Armies of the Night. And um, it's, it's interesting for uh, the students, uh, the 18-year-olds, to get exposed to writers like that and to writing like that. Because nowadays... Um, a lot of the educational institutions are uh, skimping back. They're limiting um, the uh, intake on, on core courses and um, just um, allowing the kids to take the you know techie courses or, or whatever that's going to contribute to their ultimate career. And um, unfortunately, it doesn't always contribute to their ultimate education. <laughs> so yeah. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, so um, as you start to, you know, we have about 15 more minutes left, so we're talking a little bit about, like, getting a little to the core of, like, you talked about themes and ideas that, that drive you forward, and, and talking a little bit about what the, the passion in your life, what really inspires you. Um, we're being focused a little bit on that, and, like, you know, a lot of times, I think the relationship to history seems to be coming up, uh, for me at least, uh, in, in your writing, like relationship and kind of how identity can be uh, intertwined with the collective. But what what other ideas? Or if, do you agree with that? Do you agree that's kind of like a, a kind of a theme in in the in the book a little before twelve, like uh, uh, how personal identities and that kind of yeah. connects with personal is political in a sense. The theme of the show, right? Yeah, I, I certainly do. Um, I do think that. Um, I think every writer, every poet has. Um, uh, has personal poet uh, mm. poems about their background and uh, the people that they've known, not just the uh, love relationships, um, and um, and and of course you grow as a person and as a writer by knowing these people, mm. either for good or for bad. So um, mm. I, I would like to my last poem. I would like to read. Um, uh, about uh, my father. It's called Daddy's Girl. Sure, sure. Let me try to ident- get it here. Yeah, we still have about like 15 more minutes. Oh, okay. So we still have a little bit of time. But we can talk a little bit about that afterwards. Oh, yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, he died when I was seven, so I really, um, he, I feel like I, I've known him, but I don't think that, uh, I don't feel as though he, he stuck around long enough to really, Uh, No, me, unfortunately. Um, So this is called Daddy's Girl. He sold war bonds with movie stars and kept my mother waiting for the big church wedding. He was third army all the way, armored division. He ran into a burning tank to save the men in his platoon and was awarded the Silver Star for valor and action. By the time the war was ended, he was awarded two oak leaf clusters, three purple hearts, the Bronze Star for Bravery, and a personal letter and citation from General Patton himself. 
He taught me how to swim by throwing me into the Atlantic Ocean. Every Saturday night when we played Monopoly or Parcheesi, he made me stay up late for just one more rematch before morning. He brought home crystal ashtrays and handmade clocks from Germany, which sat on our mantle for many years. He had a bad knee, a glass eye, and shrapnel in every part of his body. He sold so many war bonds he was asked to stay on with the movie stars, which he didn't mind at all. He bought me a Victrola and Elvis Presley records and taught me how to jitterbug, and every Sunday he would speed down a back road when nobody was around with the radio blaring to the rock and roll station of my choice. He caught malaria in North Africa, which suddenly made a surprise appearance on their honeymoon. He stayed up all night by my crib when one day I had a coffee fit, coughing fit and turned blue. He died of Luke Gehrig's disease when I was seven and never even knew I made the dean's list for three semesters straight. Interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Beautiful. And it's interesting to think about our the... the um, yeah, the relationship, the relationships we have, and, and imagining what if they, you know, kind of that what if question. If they'd known more, if they'd had, if we had a deeper, you know, kind of a thing. If we'd lived on. Yeah. Well, I have a funny poem to. Um, yeah. To, to end with. Yeah. It's, it's not exactly accurate, but anyway, it's called "Rude Girl." She leaves tiny tips or nothing at all. She despises anything that even remotely resembles PC. She will always walk up the steps that are only meant for the crowd walking down. When she is in a conversation with someone who speaks too slowly, she will always interrupt them to ask where the bathroom might be. When she is of the opinion that someone is an intolerable bore, she will proceed to imitate them even if they are still in the room. When she is on a date with someone who turns out to be an insufferable dud, she will suddenly begin to recite lines from Gone with the Wind, such as, Oh, Rhett, and there's always tomorrow. Whenever her coffee costs more than one dollar, nine times out of ten, she will pay the difference in pennies. Oh, well. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting, interesting. Thank you, thank you. So, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, let me just give a couple, couple quick announcements before we have, run out of time. Uh, this is the Truth to Passion Ray for Brooklyn. Uh, Ray for Brooklyn is sponsored in part by Peters Valley School of Craft. Peter Valley presents the Fall Craft Fair at the Sussex County, New Jersey Fairgrounds on September 25th and 26th. Visitors can bar- browse and buy handcrafted pieces from over 100 exhibiting artists. Tickets sales support Peter Valley School of Craft. Fostering creative thinking through fine art, fine craft education programs and events. Tickets and more information can be found at petersvalley.org. That p e t e r s v a l l e y dot o r g. Um, so the Radio for Brooklyn is a listener-supported radio. So Radio for Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and provide media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every doll helps us to continue to stay on air. And um, you know, continue the work in the community. We are a five hundred one c three nonprofit organization, and, we can, and so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at donate If you're an Amazon shopper and you'd like to donate in the way that costs you nothing, uh, go to readyforbrooklyn.org/amazon and register Ready for Brooklyn as your Amazon Smile charity. Once you shop, every time you shop, a portion of your purchase will go to benefit Ready for Brooklyn. 
Um, also, if you're listening to the show um, when you're in front of your computer, please free yourself up by going downloading our free mobile apps for iPhone or Android. Develop the App Store for iPhone, the Google Play Store for Android. Uh, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the upcoming events, uh, programming, and new programming and latest news. You can sign up already for Glendorg slash newsletter. So speaking, that kind of makes you think about community and uh, and how you know how we understand community, how we understand um, our relationship with community. We've talked a little bit about that over the course of the show, but kind of as a culminating um, part, like how community has changed for you, how the idea of community has changed for you over the years, and and how you reside with community today. Well, yeah, um, with the pandemic, uh, you begin to feel really alienated and and afraid because um, there's a disease out there and um, uh, you, you suddenly can't really go to a store and uh, and say hi to somebody. You have mm. to stay at home. Uh, so that, that was uh, very scary. And um, the um, Queens are still a community. Mm. Still, you, you still have that sense of community in, in New York uh, in general. You know, Brooklyn, Queens... Um, it's still here, um, and and I'm grateful for it. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. And like uh, thinking about like the different communities you've inhabited over the years as well, like and how, um, like where where else have you lived in over the course of your life, or how, where were you born and where did you live? Uh, born in Brooklyn, uh, Greenpoint, uh, Williamsburg, right. and um, most of the time I've lived in uh, Queens, though. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I mean, I really love Williamsburg and Greenpoint. I, I love it. I love growing up there. Yeah. It was so safe and so pretty and so so nice, basically. Um, but uh, I like uh, grass around me. <laughs> I, I, I like the idea you can wake up and and uh, and everything is um, uh, smells really good. And there's uh, 20 minutes to Manhattan still. But but you you don't have to um, feel claustrophobic, so that's why I like Queens. Uh, I'm in Forest Hills right now. Good, really. good. yeah, that's so amazing. And like, uh, yeah, people can go to postofqueens.org. Um, yeah, tell us a little bit about where they can find you and all that kind of thing. Where can they like follow you or follow your exploits? So we have Facebook, Post Queens, I guess. Right? Yeah, Facebook, yeah. yeah, definitely Facebook. Yeah, and um, I'll be around. Um, uh, at the end of this year and um, and next year, uh, hopefully doing a lot more readings uh, as the pandemic breaks up. Mm. I just did one uh, last Tuesday uh, for um, a poem published in the Parkinson's anthology for uh, Minter and Hal Sirowitz. Mm. And so that, that was fun. And you can find my poem there as well. Yeah. So hopefully, I'll, uh, if not Facebook, you can reach me in New York City. I'll be doing um, uh, readings out there in the new year. And the end of this one, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. So um, what is it? Um, so we have about five more minutes. So the, during the course of the pandemic, tell us a bit about how you do. Did you um, watch anything or how did you occupy yourself during the, especially during the lockdown? Did you... Oh, Did definitely, uh, yes. Um, Downton Abbey. And I've got a um, kind of a funny poem about that. Um, it's called What is a Weekend, which is uh, a line from the series. 
Yeah. I'm struck, stuck inside the four walls of my studio apartment because of the COVID-19 virus. I'm in New York City and the disease is everywhere, but it has somehow made me realize what is truly important to me and what I really care about, what is closest to my heart beyond everything else. Of course, I mean Downton Abbey. I make myself a hearty breakfast and then an early dinner, and I look forward to five in the evening when there is yet another blessed episode of Downton Abbey. Every single day. Anyway, what day is it? I don't know who I like more. The guy who almost dies at the end of season three, or the cute Irish chauffeur revolutionary who marries the youngest daughter who dies at the end of season two. Then there's that tough valet, Bates, who got arrested for killing his wife, and then married Anna the maid, who was viciously attacked by another creepy valet, who Bates probably did kill, but was once again miraculously released from prison and proven innocent. And they all lived happily ever after. I'm so glad there's something in my life that keeps my mind off death. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Thank you, thank you. Um, so yeah, as we, as we start to close down, uh, any final thoughts on finding your voice and, you know, themes of... Uh, discovering like you know yeah finding your voice and such like that finding that powerful voice that you have in a little before 12 and all your poetry writing uh how you discover that how and how that kind of uncovered for you how the discovery of that that process of discovering your voice yeah well when you're on the edge either with a pandemic or feeling uh worthless or depressed or anything and and you're pushed to the edge um uh, that that's the time to um, to try to evaluate and uh, have it culminate into something uh, something that you can express, and uh, so that's what I try to do. And uh, sometimes it's it, it doesn't have to be a depressing notion; it could be uh, very happy. Also, um, you you could look upon a a dire situation and see the comedy in it as I just, I just did. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, you could have so many different takes on, um, on every, every instance, every situation you experience. It's what you choose to do with it, how you choose to express that on the page in a poem that uh, really matters. Uh, and, um, and then you see if it works in the end as, as a mature uh, writer, as, as a mature poet. You know when it works. So anyway, VJ, I want to thank you for inviting me here. Thank you. Thank it's been you. really wonderful. Thank you Beautiful. so much. Yeah, I'm going to play one quick song. Do you have any suggestions of songs you like? Any favorite songs? Uh, any favorite music? Stones. Rolling Stones? Yeah. Oops. Let me play uh, She's a Rainbow. Oh, that sounds nice. All Thank right, you. Cool. Let me just put that on.
Today, I'm at Testo Northern Italian Restaurant on the corner of Shoals and Leonard Street, where owners and managers Max and Dominic first opened the restaurant's doors in 2012. Max knows more about it because 